There are two kinds of tests which believers face. First, there are the trials of faith which come from God. These are for our good. They produce spiritual maturity. They, prov they prove the genuineness of our faith. Second, there are temptations of our flesh, which come from within ourselves. These are never for our good. Temptations are born out of our lust and give birth to sin. And left unchecked, sin will result in death. In James 1.16, James addresses his readers as my beloved brethren. James' use of my brethren, Adelphos, is a reminder that he views his readers as his fellow siblings in God's family. Together they are part of the same fellowship or the same community of love. The use of Adelphos as a name for believers was first used by Jesus. Matthew 25, verse 40. The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers, Adelphos, of mine, even the last of them you did it to me. Matthew 28, verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. And then Hebrews 2, 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them Adelphos, or to call them brethren. And Jesus delineated what it means to be one of his brethren. In Matthew 12, verse 50, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother. See, my friends, if you do not obey God's will... You have no right to consider yourself Christ's brother. And so, Christian, I ask you, are you doing God's will? But you're asking yourself, well, how do I know what is God's will? Friends, God's will is clearly revealed in his commands. Thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. Simply begin right there in God's Word. James also says in verse 16 that his brethren are beloved. Now the term beloved, agapetas, is derived from the term agapao, which means to sacrificially seek the highest good of someone else with no expectation of anything in return. And by calling his readers beloved, James is expressing that they were the object of his sacrificial love. And he's reminding his readers of his sacrificial love for them, so to make them ready to receive the difficult things he's going to share with them. You see, people are more apt to listen when they know the person speaking cares about them and wants God's best for them. And here James is going to confront them with the fact that they have been deceived. They have fallen victim to temptations. However, James seeks their highest good, and so he explains to them and to us how to have victory over temptations. And so in James 1, 16-18, he prescribes three steps for us to be victorious 
over temptations. We need to avoid deception. We need to affirm God's goodness. And we need to accept God's purposes. So the first step to being victorious over temptation is to avoid deception. James 1 verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now notice that James begins with a command. Do not be deceived. The imperatival force of the verb lends itself to this translation. Stop being deceived. Apparently, some of James' readers were being deceived. Perhaps even some of you are being deceived. And so James commands us to stop being deceived. And if you are not being deceived, then avoid deception so to not be deceived. Now the verb deceived means to be misled from the proper belief or truth. It comes from the Greek verb planao. The verbs used in 2 Peter 2.15 to describe the false teachers. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Planao. Plane, a cognitive of planao, is used in 2 Peter 3.17 to warn believers to be on guard against error. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error, the plane, of unprincipled men. In this sense, the term error means to wander away from the right path. The term plane is also used in 2 Peter 3.18 to describe the false teachers as the ones who live in error. They wander from the right path. And here the term is rendered as misleading or deceptive beliefs. You know, Christ warned the disciples in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 4, see to it that no one misleads you. No one planes you. Now, if the disciples could be led astray or deceived by false teachers, how much more should we heed James' warning? Do not be deceived. As Kurt A. Richardson states, if the great temptation of the sinner is unbelief, then the great temptation of the believer is misbelief. Now, is misbelief a big deal? I mean, as long as someone believes in God, does it really matter what they believe? And the answer to both questions is yes. See, misbelief is a big deal because simply believing in God is not sufficient. You need to believe in God according to the standards that He has set forth. James 2.19 You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. See, in James 2.19, James speaks of belief in the oneness of God. That is, that God is three persons who exist as one God. Now, the demons, or fallen angels, also believe in the oneness of God. However, just because they believe one right thing about God does not save them. They believe many wrong things about God. And it was their wrong beliefs about God's sovereignty, for example, that led them to rebel and be cast out of heaven. You see, my friends, even if someone believes many right things about God, believing just one wrong thing has deadly consequences. Now, the command to not be deceived 
is not unique to James, though he is the first to employ it. The command, do not be deceived, occurs three other times in the New Testament epistles. There is the command to not be deceived about who does and does not enter the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now let me pause there for a second and just say, Though such people are damned to hell, Paul states in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. There is redemption for those who repent of their sin and place their faith in the salvific work of Jesus Christ. Now, there is also the command to not be deceived about the danger of cohorting with the wrong crowd. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And there's also the command to not be deceived about the consequences of one's actions. Galatians 6.7 Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Now, in particular, James here is warning believers to not be deceived or led astray concerning the precise source of temptation. You see, James' original readers struggled with thinking that God was the cause of their temptation. But James emphasizes that the temptation to sin cannot be blamed on God, on Satan, on other people, on your environment, or on your past circumstances. See, my friend, you are responsible for your lust, your temptation, and your sin. And in order to be victorious over temptation, we must avoid deceptions or at the least stop being deceived about them. Now, the second step in having victory over temptation is to affirm God's goodness. Verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James 1.17 Again, the second step in having victory over temptation is to affirm God's goodness. Now, previously in James 1.13, James states that God cannot be tempted by evil. His point was that God is pure and has no experience with evil. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. You see, James' readers had been deceived into misbelieving something about God's nature. Namely, that he was less than good. However, Scripture affirms that God is good and does good. Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. See, my friends, because God is good, then whatever finds its source in God must be good. Temptations are not good 
because they produce sin and death. Therefore, temptations are not from God. Trials are good because they result in spiritual maturity and proven faith. Therefore, since trials are good, they must be from God. And so then James affirms God's goodness in sending trials. He states that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Now this statement literally reads, every good act of giving and every perfect gift is from above. Likely, James is quoting from a Jewish or early Christian hymn. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because we know that this quote is from a hymn because of the grammar. See, in the Greek, this is grammatically known as a hexameter. A hexameter is a pattern of long and short syllables that form a rhythm used in epic poems such as the Iliad or Odyssey. Hexameters were originally used by Greek poets so that their epics could be set to music. You see, music can be used to create the tone or the emotion of the epic. As well, people have a greater ability to remember things that are set to music. That's why God gave the Jews the Psalter, that's the Psalms, as a means of learning deep theology about God, creation, redemption, and so much more. The early church continued to value the use of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as a means of teaching and learning theology. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Regarding the importance of theology to worship music, Matt Redman stated, Worship songs can't just be rooted in culture. They won't be deep enough. They have to be rooted in Scripture. Now, the verb things given in James 1.17 refers to giving something without any compensation in return. The verb is qualified by the term good, agathos, meaning beneficial or practical. Hence, God gives things that are beneficial without any thought of compensation. The term gift, dorima, refers to the thing that was given without thought of compensation. And James states that the gift is perfect, teleos, because it's complete or lacking in nothing. You see, the gift has everything needed for its intended purpose. And note that James quantified the good things given and the perfect gift with the term every, pas. Every implies that there is not one gift from God that is not beneficial or lacking in anything. You see, these gifts have every necessary thing for the recipient as God intended. God never gives a warm jacket to someone freezing only for them to discover the jacket is too small. Now this same term, perfect, tilios, describes God the Father. Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That God is perfect implies that he is complete or lacking in nothing. As such, he is unblemished and without defect. That is, there is no taint of evil about him. And so the unblemished God gives practical gifts that are without defect or evil intent. By the way, this is why he cannot tempt believers to sin. 
Furthermore, he gives without expectation of compensation because he gives out of his agape love, which seeks the highest good of the other person with no expectation of compensation. And since trials are God-given, and God always gives good and perfect gifts, it implies that trials are good or beneficial for us, and that there's nothing evil about them, though they may appear evil from our vantage point. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good uh, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. These good and perfect gifts are from above, coming down from the Father of lights. See, these gifts are from above. Anothane. That is, from a higher plane. Jesus used the term anothen to refer to the new birth. John chapter 3 and verse 3. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, anothen, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again, anothen. Specifically, Jesus states that one must be born again, or literally, born from above. In other words, friends, the second birth, or spiritual birth, originates in heaven. And just as the gift of salvation originates in heaven, so also every good thing given and every perfect gift originates in heaven. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, gifted us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And while these gifts originate in heaven, they come down from the Father of lights. Now the verb coming down, katabaino, means that these gifts descend from heaven to those on earth. Specifically, they descend from the Father of lights. Now the phrase Father of lights is an allusion to a Jewish morning prayer that acknowledges God as the creator of all things, including the lights. That God is the Father underscores His creative power. Job 38, 28. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? See, because He created all things, in a sense, He is the Father of all things. Particularly, James focuses on God's creation of the lights. The lights here refers to the sun, moon, and stars. Genesis 1, 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Psalm 136, 7 to 9. To him who made the great lights, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The sun to rule by day, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Jeremiah 31, 35, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Friends, of all the things God created, James chooses to focus on light. His choice of light is significant because, as 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. Thus, light symbolizes all that is good in contrast to Satan's evil kingdom of darkness. Acts 26, 18. To open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light, from evil to good, and from the dominion of Satan to God. 
Colossians 1, 12-13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now God created these lights, the sun, the moon, the stars, to mark the changing of the seasons, the days, and the years, as we saw in Genesis 1.14. James refers to the creation of the sun, moon, and stars as evidence of God's power and care for His creation and creatures. Psalm 136, verse 1 and 7, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to Him who made the great lights, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Isaiah 40, and verse 26, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars, the one who leads forth the host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Indeed, God's character is good. And not only can his goodness, but also his divine power and care can be seen, written in creation. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Every time the sun or moon rises or sets, it is a reminder to us of God's goodness and that He gives us good gifts. Friends, I want to ask you a question. How often do you pause to watch a sunrise or sunset and meditate on God's goodness? I would suggest you do it. I would suggest you take a moment and meditate. Look at creation and look for the goodness of God. Look for His care. Look for His concern. Be reminded who God is. You see, what makes the Father of Light so unique is that He has no variation or shifting shadow. Now, in the ancient world, the phrase variation and shifting shadow refers to astronomical phenomena. Variation, paralege denotes the fixed movements of the sun and moon. It is the Father of Lights, by the way, who has fixed their movements. Job 38, 31-33. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heaven or fix their rule over the earth? No, only God does. Shifting, trope, refers to changes that occur in the astronomical heavens. Shadows, apaskisma, is a reference to the darkness caused by the blockage of light. By combining shifting with shadow, it's likely a reference to the different phases of the moon, or perhaps a lunar or solar eclipse. Now understand here, James is not making a scientific statement. He's referencing the ever-changeableness of the celestial bodies to reinforce the theological truth that their creator does not change. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. And it's interesting that the Jewish historian Philo, a contemporary of James, made a very similar comparison. He stated, It is necessary, therefore, that every created thing should at times be changed. For this is the property of every created thing, just as it is an attribute of God to be unchangeable. 
See, James' point is that while the phases of the moon change and the shadow from the sun shifts as it moves across the sky, God is constant and consistent. Praise God. He's not phased by the fickleness or faithlessness of His children. Praise God. Believers, we need not fret that God's gifts will be anything less than good or perfect. Praise God. God is a giver of good and perfect gifts. Already James has revealed that God gives wisdom generously to those believers who ask. Have you asked? Wisdom in trials is good or beneficial for dealing with trials. And as well, wisdom is a perfect gift because it is everything you need in order to endure the trial and comprehend God's purpose in the trial. So in order to have victory over temptations, we must avoid deceptions. But we also must affirm God's goodness. Consider the example of Job. Amid his trials, Job was tempted to sin by cursing God. Instead, he affirmed God's goodness. James 2, 9-10. His wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And as a result, he overcame temptation and was victorious. Now the third step. And having victory over temptation is to affirm God's purpose. To affirm God's purposes. James chapter 1 and verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. James states that in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, the verb brought forth, apakuo, means to give birth. James previously used this term in, in verse 15 of James 1. When sin is accomplished, that's there's the word, apukoo, it brings forth death. See, whereas sin gives birth to death, God gives birth to life, in particular spiritual life. Philo used this Greek verb, apakuo, to explain how God brought creation into existence. And so having referred to God as the father of creation... James, too, uses the imagery of birth to shift from God's creative power to his redemptive power. By brought forth, James is referring to God's recreation or regeneration of humanity, otherwise known as being born again or born from above. John 1.13 Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As Jesus stated in John 3, 3, Truly I, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. My friends, you need to be born again or born from above. That means you need to receive spiritual life. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, Believers, we have been saved through faith, which is the gift of God. Salvation is the penultimate good and perfect gift from God to humanity. Explicitly, it is the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, who imparts or accomplishes this new birth. John 3, 6 and 8. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Titus 3, 5, He saves us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of who? The Holy Spirit. God imparts spiritual life in the exercise of His will. Now, the exercise of his will refers to God's eternal decree. Paul refers to the decree of God as God working all things after the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11 We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. See, it is the working of his sovereign control over all things. Notice that God's decree is in accordance to his purposes. God's decree is a single, all-encompassing purpose. Again, Ephesians 1, 9 and 11. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. See, God's gifts are given according to His kind intention, or benevolent favor. His gifts are given according to His purpose, and his purpose is a determination to achieve something. God established his purpose according to his counsel or his thought out plan, which will accomplish his goals. God also imparts this new spiritual life through the word of truth. Now Paul emphasizes the dual role of the Holy Spirit and the word of truth in the imparting of spiritual life. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 but we should always be giving thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now, generally, the word of truth refers to Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 43. And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for your ordinances. Ecclesiastes 12.10. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. 2 Corinthians 6, 7, in the word of truth and the power of God, the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. See, the scripture is referred to as the word of truth because it is free from error or inerrant. Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. Proverbs 8, 8, all the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. John 17, 17, thy word is truth. E.J. Young states that inerrancy means that the scriptures possess the quality of freedom from error. They are exempt from the liability to mistake, incapable of error. In all their teachings, they are in perfect accord with the truth. See, when the Bible speaks on matters of doctrine, history, science, geography, or geology, it must be inerrant. Otherwise, it's not trustworthy. See, my friends, if the Bible is not trustworthy on earthly matters... How can it possibly be trustworthy on heavenly matters? More specifically, the word of truth refers to the gospel. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, In him ye also, after listening to the message or word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Colossians 1 and verse 5, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you had previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. My friends, it is the scriptures that make one wise to salvation. 
2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, From childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 17, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the words of Christ. See, the word of truth is like the seed that the sower cast on the good ground. It's, it, it sprouts, it brings forth life, and produces fruit. Matthew 13, verse 8 and verse 23, Others fell on the good ground, and yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirty. And the one of, on whom the seed was shown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The word of truth is the imperishable seed of the gospel which causes one to be born again. 1 Peter 1 verse 23. You have been born again not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. My friends, God's purpose in gifting the good and perfect gift of salvation was so that we would be a kind of first fruit among His creatures. Now the theology of first fruits is rooted in the Old Testament. God commanded His people to offer the first portion of their fruit, wine, corn, oil, and honey as soon as it was harvested. Exodus twenty-three nineteen, You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. Exodus twenty two twenty nine. You shall not delay the offering from your harvest and your vintage. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Second Chronicles thirty one verse five. As soon as the order spread, the sons of Israel provided in abundance the first fruit of grain, new wine, oil, and honey, and all the produce of the field, and they brought it abundantly to the Lord. See, by offering their first fruits in worship to God, the people were in essence saying, "Lord, the harvest is yours." And we want your blessing on the entire harvest. The offering of the first fruit of the harvest was a token of the people's gratitude towards God. And in turn, God guaranteed to secure and bless the harvest. Proverbs 3, 9-10 Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now James' original readers being Jewish Christians were well-versed in the offering of first fruits as an act of worship, as the means of securing God's blessing on their harvest. And here James states that believers are a kind of first fruits among his creature. The term kind, tis, is used to typify the believers as first fruits. Believers are first fruits of a larger harvest. And that harvest is the new creation when God will completely cleanse His people and the world of sin. Romans eight twenty two to 23 For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. See, as God's first fruit believer, you belong to Him. You are His possession. And therefore, you are to present yourself as a living, holy sacrifice, a first fruit offering to God. Romans 12.1 I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Are you living your life as a holy sacrifice to God? As well as God's first fruit believer, you to bear fruit. God saved you for that very purpose. 
John 15, 16, I chose and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Instead of living for yourself, your salary or your sufficiency, believer, try living for Christ and bearing fruit worthy of Him. And finally, as God's first fruits, we represent the future harvest of the new creation. Therefore, believer, we need to live now in this fallen world as an example of what God is going to do when He cleanses the world of sin. And so, believer, I challenge you to examine whether or not you're living a life that communicates the truth of God's new creation. Are you living as a first fruit? See, God's gift of salvation is a good and perfect gift that comes with a purpose. God's purpose in gifting you with the gift of salvation involves you being an example of what God's new creation is going to look like. And like the gift of salvation, all of God's gifts are good and perfect and have a purpose. And so by acknowledging God's purposes, we can overcome temptation. When you're tempted to think that your trial is some evil machination of a cosmic killjoy, stop, avoid the deception, affirm God's goodness, and acknowledge His purposes. And if necessary, ask God for wisdom to know what His purposes are. So in order to avoid deception, affirm God's goodness, and acknowledge God's purposes, believer, you need to Know God as revealed in His Word. Not how you might conceptualize Him, but how His Word reveals Him. As well, by knowing God, you're going to be better equipped for trials. You also need to review what you know about God. Reviewing daily who God is and what He has done means that when the temptation comes, you're going to be equipped to be victorious over that temptation. By knowing who and what God is and done, you're going to avoid deception. You're going to affirm God's goodness. And you're going to be able to acknowledge His purpose. You know, the Psalms, like Psalm 103, are filled with examples of reviewing God's attributes amid temptations and becoming victorious over them. Psalm 103 Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank and praise you for giving us the tools, the steps necessary to avoid the temptation. And Father, right now I pray that if anyone has been deceived, that Father, they could stop. That your spirit would show them the truth from your word. That it might reveal to them the error that they've believed. That they might reject it and avoid it going further. Father, I also would ask and pray for all of us, Lord, to keep us from deception. The only way we're going to know that what's, that what is wrong, what is wicked, what is evil is by knowing the source of truth found in your word. So Lord, help us to know you, to know your words, so that we can avoid deception.
Father, as we go through trials, as we face temptations, help us to affirm your goodness. To know, Father, that you only have our good in view. And Father, help us to acknowledge your purpose. We confess that we don't always know what your purpose is. That's why we need wisdom. So Father, as we, fa as we go through those trials, as we face those temptations, help us as we saturate ourselves in your word to know who you are and what you've done, to then have the wisdom to see your purpose. What's your purpose in this trial? What do you have to accomplish in us through this? And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us to that end. Keep us from the wicked one. Keep us from the one who seeks to devour us. And that, Lord, we may go on and be a first fruit of the harvest to come. That we might be a testimony to an unregenerate society of what your new creation is going to look like. We pray this in your son's matchless name. Amen.